Welcome to the Nigel Lee Archive, brought to you by Living Leadership, where every fortnight we share with you a sermon from the late Nigel Lee to encourage you in your walk with the Lord. Here's today's message. Can you turn, please, um, for our Bible reading tonight to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 12. If you need a copy of the Church Bible, um, we can get you. It's page 1165 in that. Um, Hold your hand up and someone will come. Eleven six five. It's Paul's second letter to the Corinthians and the twelfth chapter. And we're going to read ten verses. Paul says, I must go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool, because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. To keep me from becoming conceited, because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray again a moment. Father God, we turn to your word and and we ask that we would be given now in these few minutes illumination, the help of your spirit. Point us to Christ and show us something of his work in Paul and the principles of Christian living. Lord, we've thought of many things already this evening and we pray that you'd draw these threads together and bring to conclusion as we listen to you in the pages of of your holy word. For Jesus' sake, Amen. Sticks and stones may break my bones. But words will never hurt. True. Biggest lie I ever heard. I think probably most of us would look back on times of being really hurt by people's words. And very few of us actually beaten about with with sticks or stones. Paul the Apostle came in for a vast amount of criticism. 
Probably more than we realize, actually. Practically everything about the man, at one time or another, was abused or, or ridiculed. First it was the Jews, um, who hated his mission to the Gentiles, and uh, chased him up and down one end of the Eastern Mediterranean to the other. And then latterly, it was the Gentiles themselves who turned against him. And Paul, in his later epistle, talks about the way in which they've all deserted me, they've turned against me, and, and so on. We've come in our little series that we've been running for these last recent few evenings on, on relying on God's strength. We've come to the last one, which is called the power of the week. And um, next week it becomes uh, sort of Christmassy, and, and then we need all the strength we can get. I think. Um, but um, I'm going to flip up on, on the overhead projector a thing that I discovered in, in my files. It's an outline I once did for a UCCF team on, on 2 Corinthians. Don't worry about all the details. It just gives you something of the basic um, outline of the book. I actually did bring a few copies of this um, written out because I discovered them in the same file. So if anybody wants one of these after, um, you're welcome to it. But um, what Paul is doing uh, as we run through 2 Corinthians is he's defending, actually, himself as an apostle against um, the most astonishing criticisms. But he's doing it in, the, in, a, in a way in which he shows how blow after blow as it has landed on him he actually finds that it has driven him to find more comfort in God, and he then passes on the kind of lessons that he's learned. Um, don't worry about all the details. Just look at the slightly bolder bits. They criticized him at first, um, but his character was, was unreliable, particularly in the way he decided what to do, his sense of guidance, how he, he made his plans. And then they criticized him that his gospel was absurd, an absurd little thing, that gospel, just all about a crucified man, and and what, can, what good can there be in that? And he deals with that. They criticize his, his physical appearance. A poor specimen. Which, of course, didn't go down very well with the Greeks. And then they criticized him um, because of all the troubles that he'd gone through. Um, you can hear them in the background saying, you know, if Paul's only been slightly more balanced, and a little bit less fanatical, he wouldn't have finished up in so many riots, which led to imprisonments and beatings and so on. If only the man would have calmed down a little bit and behaved like us. And he would have got away with a lot more. And of course, the work would have gone on, you know, greater or better. So they criticised him for the troubles that he, he went through. The Greeks, you see, had a certain image in their mind of what um, a spiritual or a religious leader should be like closely connected to what we um, mean, actually, by the word super-spirituality nowadays. The Greeks expected their religious leaders to be a powerful personality, physically a specimen of perfection, and uh, certainly not someone who got, got the flu, or had to retire to bed sick, or got migraines, or, or someone who was sometimes afraid of what was going to happen next or didn't really know what the Lord's will was at times. And uh, Paul confesses to all these things because he doesn't conform. Um, they, they got at him because of his finances. In chapters 8 and 9, financial dealings need scrutiny. All this money that he's collecting from 
from Christians here, there and everywhere to take to give to poor believers. Well, we don't know what happens to it. We don't see it once it's gone out of our trouser pockets. And he was getting criticised for that. And then, at the end, his claim to be an apostle. And Paul is dealing with that in chapters 10 to 12. And he starts off chapter 10 by admitting to being in person rather gentle and timid. Not at all the sort of thing that the Greeks expected of their apostles. A bit gently, he said, I can write tough letters, but when I'm actually with you, I'm a bit nervous. I'm not very strong. In, in chapter 10, verse 10, they say, some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive. And his speaking amounts to nothing. Can you imagine them looking down their long noses? In person. He's an unimpressive, weedy little specimen. And when you hear him speak, I don't know why anybody bothers to listen to him. In, in chapter 11, they've evidently been criticising him for not charging for his services as an apostle. He doesn't even charge. He comes and does apostolic ministry, and he, he does it for free. He can't value it very highly. I don't how they criticised him for that. And clearly there were people around at the time who were claiming to be apostles themselves who were quite boastful. And uh, the Greeks, the Corinthians, used to listen to these chaps and be really quite taken in by the sort of things that they would say about what they've been doing and, and so on. And so, chapter 11, verse 22, for instance, um, or 23, Paul says, well, look, if you're going to be mesmerised by all this boastful stuff, you, you shouldn't be, but you are. Well, let me boast a little then. Let me give you some of the marks of the true servant of Christ. Verse 23 of chapter 11. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. Well, I am more. I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I mean, the actual apostles only records one. There are two other occasions he was floating around in the Mediterranean clinging to some old Grimsby fish box. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst, and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak, and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin, and I do not inwardly burn? It's an astonishing list, isn't it? These are the marks of authentic, apostolic ministry. The results of his great preaching campaigns? Not mentioned. Some indication of his prolific theological writings? Not a word. List of the great Christians that he's known down through the years? Nothing. Not a single thing that would impress a Greek at all. 
You say, he says to somebody, that you often feel weak. Well, so do I. Increasingly inadequate. I battle with sin too, he says. And he ends the chapter in a rather humorous way by um, <laughs> saying this. Uh, verse 32. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me, but I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through their hands. I mean, the poor man finally had to get out by being squashed into some basket and lowered down on a rope to get... I mean, what a joke. An apostle on the run, trying to get away from those that were, were going to do him down. But then into chapter 12, you see, and the life of an apostle is not all suffering. It has included, in his case, a most rare vision or a series of visions and revelations from heaven. And uh, this is his best kept secret. Let me give you just the beginnings of a, um, an outline of the rest of the chapter. That work? Yep. Caught up into the third heaven, says verse 2. Caught up to paradise, says verse 4. Paul's best kept secret. Quite what this means, we don't know. So, we're not told. Don't, don't worry about it. If we're not told, don't waste time hankering to know. The remarkable thing that we are told is that he has kept quiet about it for 14 years and said nothing. You know, if I had been caught up to the third heaven yesterday in preparing for this, I, I'm rather inclined to think I'd be telling you today and my book would be coming out in the new year. <laughs> but not Paul. He has sat on this thing for years and years. In fact, when he starts to tell us about it, he almost seems to be trying to dissociate himself from it. Fourteen years later, he's still embarrassed. He says, I know a man who... Um, it isn't until verse 7 that we get round to discovering that it is actually him that he's talking about. Two or three times he says, oh, well, I know this fellow who um, had these visions. And finally, he, he comes clean and lets us know that it was him. Had these astonishing visions. And then, we read in verses 7 and 8 about what we will call Paul's thorn. We'll move that up a bit. <coughs> to keep me from becoming conceited, because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away. We're not actually sure what this is either. The Greek um, for thorn re means rather more, actually, than a little tiny thorn. It's, it's more like a stake. It's a, it's a pretty big um, spike that would be driven into you. I mean, he, he is not saying, you know, God gave me such awesome revelations that he had to give me a splinter you know, to keep me a little bit humble. little tiny thing that you poke out with a pin. Was it a physical problem? He does say it was a thorn in the flesh. We don't know. 
Was it a person, a particular person? He calls this thing a messenger of Satan, and, and the Greek word for messenger, angelos, is the one that is used of a person carrying some messenger, or even actually a messenger from God, an angel. It's from that that we get the word angel. I've read over the years, I think, a whole range of suggestions as to what it, what it might have been. Learned scholars have suggested that it is epilepsy, a speech impediment, malaria, badly damaged eyesight, migraine attacks, bouts of depression, or his Jewish critics. And we just don't know. We don't know what it is. But it was something which Paul clearly, at first, felt hindered the gospel. It was described as a messenger of Satan. Something which left him feeling, you know, I could do better if it wasn't for this. I could be a better person. I could accomplish more if only it was not for this thing. Perhaps the fact that we don't know exactly what it is, is in fact half the point. So that so many more of us can identify with whatever it was that he was, that was troubling him. He says it, it tormented him. It was sent to torment me. Literally, that word means buffet. The root of that word is the word for knuckles. Bunch of fives, you know? It's the same word that is used in the description of the crucifixion when they came up to Christ and they smacked him across the face. They punched him. They gave him knuckles. It's that word. And this thing, whatever it was, used to torment him. Repeatedly. I mean, this is really strong language. I want you to understand that the, the kind of language being used here is, is not light and trivial stuff. We're in anguish territory. He really suffered. And Paul, on three separate occasions, asked the Lord Jesus to be delivered from it. Please. And what happened? Great apostle, great man of prayer, Someone who had been counted worthy to be caught up to the very third heaven. He comes and asks the Lord Jesus uh, to do something. Well, God doesn't always answer our prayers in exactly the way we might like. And instead, he learned a lesson that has been instructive for believers down through the centuries and ever since. And so we come to the, um, the last bit of the chapter, which I've called Paul's Realizations. In verses 9 and 10. The Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest upon me. What I want to do is to divide very quickly, in the, the few minutes that we have, the realizations that he came to, the revelations that he came to through faith and experience, rather than just in ecstasy or trance. Divide them into four. But before we do that, let's stop and think about ourselves. You think about yourself. The thorns in your own life. The experience of pain. The damage that has perhaps been done to you by parents or by circumstance or by church splits and troubles that you've been through 
the hurts that you may carry, the things that you just wish were not part of your life story, those things in life where you think, if it were not for that, I could do so much better, but I'm stuck with it. For some of us it may indeed be physical things, a physical weakness, analogy maybe, something that you were just born with, or it happened to you before you, you even maybe knew the Lord. With others it may be something that's happened in the past and it still haunts you. Some people think that a lack of a marriage partner is just, it's like this, it's, it's there in my life. I have to say to you, I've met more people who think that the marriage partner they've got is the thorn in their flesh. But it can go either way, you see. People think, if only I had a different job, if only my life had gone a different direction, if only I had different children, why did I get the ones that I got? Or different responsibilities. We all, every one of us in the room tonight, have these, if only, longings and dreams. And I want to tell you that Paul the Apostle faces this head on. My own conviction is that genuine, authentic Christian ministry can only come out of pressure, brokenness and pain. The things that God allows to happen in our lives are actually all part of his deliberate intention. Look what Paul says. He says there in verse 7 that God uses suffering to humble his children. Paul has experienced astonishing revelations, things that actually could create havoc with your humility. And so verse 7, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these great revelations, there was given me this experience of suffering. God himself allowed it. He, he sent it, you may say, to keep Paul on course. It was an equalizing element, if you like, in his life. To stop him being spoiled or conceited, it was precisely because the Lord loved him. Wanted him to come to the third heaven. Wanted to give him these revelations, but needed to put a balancing factor in his experience. God uses these things to humble us. Secondly, God uses suffering to draw us to himself. Three times it says, he sought the Lord. We don't know that even the circumstances of that, whether he, he took special time out with fasting and prayer, we don't know. Our prayer lives are never so good as when we are under attack or in pain. True or false? True. We know it. And from time to time, uh, the Lord allows these things to come. Do you think that God doesn't know enough about us to recognize that when these things come, that's when we seek him more, more humbly and more urgently? So, secondly, God uses suffering to draw us to himself. Thirdly, God uses suffering to display his grace. Beginning of verse 9. The Lord said to me, my grace is going to be sufficient for you. 
We will suffer pain and disappointment, things in church life, things in marriage, things at work and so on. In fact, Philippians 1.29 says anybody who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. These things are actually inevitable in life. There is no promise in scripture that I know that we will avoid such things, rather that they will be present. But God's absolute promise, whatever things hit us, things that we might have wished when we set out on that marriage were going to be different, or wished when we got into that church would turn out different, whatever things hit us, God's absolute promise is that he will, he will, he will provide sufficient grace if we lean on him. You don't need more than sufficient, do you? Sufficient will do. And he promises sufficient. And the fourth lesson that he learned this way, not in ecstasy, not falling down into trance, but through the experience of frustration and suffering and pain, the fourth lesson is that God uses my suffering to manifest his power. And it's astonishing, isn't it? There's no one too weak to be usable in God's hands. God says, my power is made perfect in weakness. Most of us, on the contrary, I think are too strong and too stubborn. When you think about Paul, when you think of some of the occasions of of him in evangelism, leading people to Christ. I mean, one of the sort of the background things that have been on many people's minds this evening, as we're approaching Christmas and we're thinking of family, and we're thinking of people who don't know the Lord yet, and there's been a wonderful, quiet bubbling up of a sense of concern for those in our families that don't know the Lord yet. And we would long for them to, to come into the kingdom. I want to just tell you that practically every occasion when you see Paul involved in personal evangelism, it is when he's very weak, or broken, or hurting. I mean, think of him in the prison in, in Philippi. The skin lashed off his back. And yet within moments in that situation, of great weakness as a prisoner, He's leading the jailer to Christ. Or we see him standing in front of, of some uh, magistrate or king, a chained prisoner, telling the man how to get converted. We see him emerging up out of the storm after the ship has gone down underneath him, onto the island of Malta, and before long he's, he's got a fire going and he's gathered a few people and he's preaching the gospel to them, dripping wet. Bedraggled character, lost practically every bit of luggage he had with him but getting on with evangelism. It seems to me that Paul knew this experience very deeply. Standing there in great weakness, having perhaps been ignored or insulted or the butt of jokes, and yet God uses him in those kind of circumstances. It's astonishing it's, it, to me, um, to anyone who reads the New Testament at all regularly, that there are people going around today saying God wants us all to be healthy and rich and powerful and awesome in a worldly sort of way. Not what Paul says, and it wasn't the experience of the apostles. Here he's saying God would rather have us poor and weak and fairly regularly insulted so that we trust him, so that we draw near to him. 
so that we cling to him more, so that we're dependent upon him more. We draw near to the cross more. How many Christians do you know, or or Christian organizations for that matter, who don't have enough money? Christian organizations, quite a lot. Most, probably. I can only think of one that's got too much. And that's probably not their opinion either. Frustrated by events? Threatened with persecution? It has been the history of the church. Down through the centuries. Let's go ask John, you know, how's InterServe doing? Problems. Thumbs down. No money. Difficulties. And yet, God working. People getting converted. It's the same with my own organisation. It's the same in any church. Is everything just swimming along fine? Or give, give us a quick update, report, presidential, you know, address. No, there are weaknesses. There are people that, that you wake up at night thinking about. There are folk who are in pain. There are family situations that are grieving. And what is, what is Paul saying? You know, he says, when, when I get into that sort of situation, what does it do to me? Brings me closer. Puts me on my knees. God uses my weakness actually to display his power and glory. Christians are regularly under this kind of uh, pressure in some way or another. Of course, we, we help them in every way that we can. But the fact that they are experiencing Weakness and difficulty doesn't mean that they've missed the plot as a Christian. Far from it. They are probably absolutely on course as they should be. Paul says, when I feel weak, no strength in myself, I depend on the Lord more, he demonstrates his power more. How often it has been true in our own experience. So as we finish, time gone. Come back to those things that you were thinking about in your own life just minutes ago. Was it a person? Was it some dark cloud over a passage of your life years ago? Was it something that you did and you wish you hadn't? What was it that has left you with those thorns, those bits of brokenness, those cracked and damaged bits of your life's story. All those things that you carry, burdens to this day. What is it? Problems that seemingly won't go away. Has this passage told you anything? Come to the Lord with these things. You may have sought him about whatever it may be, and he's saying, my grace is enough. Will you trust me to work through all this, to demonstrate my power, my glory? I want to teach you more about the way I work. He will give us the grace to cope and make us a live wire, a current conducting wire of his power in the midst of a hurting and and pained and broken world. He was an astonishing man, Paul, wasn't he? That is why, for Christ's sake, he says, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. You may be going into a Christmas uh, with very difficult relatives. Hmm. Or not. 
Maybe some other thing in the new year. When I'm weak, says Paul, I find then that I am strong. May the Lord use us to touch people's lives, to live with integrity, to walk humbly with God, to stay close, so that we can see something of his power and working manifested in this apostolic way. That's the passage. So different from the way we think. May the Lord help us to draw near to him in the days ahead. Let's pray. God our Father, we thank you for this bit of foolishness by Paul. We thank you that even out of the Corinthians' misunderstandings and pride and silly talk, there could be brought by your spirit this gem of a paragraph of your holy word in response to short-sightedness and pride can come principles that help us in our daily life and in our families and futures. Oh God, would you make us in our weakness a more trusting and effective and powerful people, we pray. For your glory's sake. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. The Nigel Lee Archive is brought to you as a podcast by Living Leadership. For more information on the Nigel Lee Archive or Living Leadership's other ministries, please visit www.livingleadership.org. God bless.